Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True. And I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Adriana Limbach. Adriana is a personal development coach and a meditation instructor who specializes in helping women access their inherent clarity and confidence so that they can expand their freedom in business and life. She is a lead teacher at the Mindful Meditation Studios in New York City, and she's the author of a new book with Sounds True called Tea and Cake with Demons, A Buddhist Guide to Feeling Worthy. What impressed me so much about listening to Adriana Limbach is that here she is a millennial who discovered the core teachings of Buddhism as a gateway to working with the most challenging and difficult of emotions, including her own panic attacks early in life, and through meditation and the core Buddhist teachings, found a way to welcome absolutely every experience, even really challenging ones. Here's my conversation with Adriana Limbach. Adriana, let's start by talking about the title of your new book, Tea and Cake with Demons. Talk to me about the demons. Mm-hmm. So the demons uh, in Tea and Cake with Demons, um, the demons can be a number of different things. Um, the demons primarily that I'm I'm talking about in this book is really anything that we find to be incredibly challenging emotionally or any unintegrated aspects of our personality or anything um, that really comes to the forefront when we're feeling under-resourced or overwhelmed. Um, I know that for myself, that's oftentimes when sort of the, the harder or the gnarlier aspects of who I am, my personality um, really tend to come to the forefront and show themselves. So uh, that's what I'm talking about when I when I talk about the demons. Um, and yeah, so the title for the book really came from a story that I continued to hear kind of passed around different meditation circles and different Buddhist circles, um, which is a story about uh, the Buddha, a little anecdote about the time that his sort of, uh, I guess, arch nemesis Mara, who is the personification of self-doubt and ignorance, uh, came into town and all of his monks came running to alert him to say, you know, hey, Mara's in town, Mara's in town, what are we going to do about it? Um, and the way that the story is oftentimes told is that they they sort of launch into these different strategies for how they're going to deal with the fact that um the personification of, of self-doubt or ignorance or, you know, kind of like the big bad demon has come to town. Um, and this is the part of the story that I've always related to the most um, because, you know, in hearing the story told, I'm like, oh yeah, that is me. That That is absolutely the way that I have strategized dealing with all of the hardest aspects of my personality, the things that I feel a lot of embarrassment, a lot of shame around, um, which is to either... Uh, run for the hills, um, aka entirely repress what's going on here, just just kind of avoid it, get out of town, um, or to go on the attack, to go on the offensive, um, to sort of 
uh, deal with this this demon or this personification of the hardest parts um, by by really going on the offensive and, and taking that path, um, or to just hide, kind of like fight, flight, freeze of just going underground. Again, repression, not really dealing with it. And in this parable, in the story, uh, the Buddha says, well, why don't we try a different route? Why don't we invite Mara to tea? How about we just lay out the finest china that we have, invite him into the door, uh, and welcome him here as my esteemed guest, not as an enemy, not as a problem that I have to solve, uh, but as uh, as my guest. And, you know, in doing the research for the book, I kept trying to figure out the source of this story because it, it doesn't come from any of the suttas that I read. Uh, and there's there's really no source for the story. Um, some people say that it originated from Jack Cornfield. Some people say it originated from Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, so it, it is one of these stories that's that's kind of traded and passed around. Um, not exactly sure what its origins are, um, but I think it does such a wonderful job of of illustrating um, the way that we tend to, or just speaking from my own experience, the way that I tend to deal with uh, the more difficult emotions um, and giving a, a completely different way, giving a completely different opportunity to work with these emotions, to work with these more difficult aspects of ourselves um, mm-hmm. by inviting them in and just befriending mm-hmm. them. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about this idea of welcoming these difficult experiences. You know, it's one thing to say, you know, I'm willing to tolerate the extremes of, you know, maybe in my case, it might be something like sadness or vulnerability that is a really difficult emotion for me to be with. I'll tolerate it, but actually welcoming it, that's a a further step. So talk some about making that further step. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So again, I think it it goes back to um, taking the sting out of it a little bit. Um, of, of really looking at what it is that we don't necessarily want to be dealing with and instead flipping the script a little bit and asking ourselves, what if, what if, what if we um, not just tolerated or, or abided the presence of this thing that we don't like? Um, because I, I feel like in some sense that's sort of passive, it's passive aggression. It's like, okay, I see you and I don't want you here. So, um, I'm still going to just kind of tolerate you to some extent. Um, but instead, you know, flipping the script and, and saying, what if uh, we extended a sense of kindness, a sense of friendship um, to, to what it is that we don't sort of impulsively want? Um, not just a sense of, of tolerating, but a, a sense of accommodation. Like, okay, come on in. Um, so, Something that I've I've always found, um, particularly in the the core teachings that this stems from, and that the book is sort of wrapped around the Four Noble Truths, um, and also just in my own direct experience, that um, there is oftentimes some wisdom in whatever it is that I find that I'm avoiding, um, and I think that the the welcoming the inviting in and not just the kind of abiding or tolerating um, really gives us an opportunity to a um, treat these demons, treat what is unwanted um, or sort of undealt with unprocessed as though uh, there is some wisdom here, as though there's some value, some benefit, um, some basic dignity um, to these demons. Um, But then also it gives us an opportunity to learn from them. So this is a very, very profound idea that there's wisdom in what we've been avoiding. Can you give me an example of that from your own experience? Something you were avoiding, you welcomed to tea and cake and the wisdom that came? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, So I think for me, um, you know, something that I, I am really quick to, particularly in the moments when I'm feeling the most vulnerable, when I'm feeling the most overwhelmed, the most under-resourced, is anger. Uh, I know that for some people, 
maybe conflict and anger is, is not in their wheelhouse, but for me, it's often been right there. And it's, it's one of what I would consider to be one of my, uh, most easily reachable demons because, um, it doesn't necessarily feel good. Um, it feels really powerful in the short term. Um, but I think the, the wisdom that I found in, in the anger that I feel when I'm at my most under-resourced, my most stressed out, um, my most vulnerable, my most conflicted, is that it really is um, some wisdom, some aspect of me that's trying to reclaim some power over my uh, feeling of vulnerability. That there is a sense of wisdom there, um, but that it's just, it's coming out in sort of a a neurotic way. Um, So I think there is some sense of that anger being for my benefit, but it's just, it's coming out in a really sort of strange, wonky way. Mm -hmm. Now, Adriana, you write in the new book that your demons came out in a strong way in the book writing process itself. And that, you know, anybody who's going to write a book called Tea and Cake with Demons, get ready. Tell us about that and how you worked with it specifically to move through really the encounter with a lot of inner obstacles. Mm, Yeah. Honestly, Tammy, that is not something that I really anticipated would happen. (laughs) Which, As you say that out loud, I'm like, of course, if you're going to write a book called Dean Cake with Demons, watch out, uh, get ready for it. Um, because the entire process really was me facing up to uh, my own demons or, or essentially the, the things that obscured my feeling of um, being worthy of writing this book. Um, so all of my self-doubt, all of my hesitation, all of my embarrassment, all my shame really just came to the surface, uh, in the form of complete resistance, uh, where each time that I would sit down to write, I would have to, it almost felt like I was kind of like, um, like inviting one by one, um, the, the chorus of voices, the chorus of demons that would come to the forefront, um, and question my ability to, uh, translate what I wanted to say in a way that felt, uh, both like sincere and cohesive, um, question my right to be writing this book in the first place, uh, question my, um, ability to, to actually like finish the thing and, and feel good about it. Um, so it really was just an entire process of one by one saying, okay, hello, I see you. Thank you for the information. Okay. Come on in. All right. Let's, let's take a moment with this. Okay. So thank you for being here again. Uh, I know that we just had tea yesterday, but you know, this, this one is fresh today. Tell me, tell me why today I don't deserve to be writing this book. Um, and really sort of hearing those parts of myself out, hearing those insecurities out, um, and allowing them to have a voice and allowing them to have a seat at the table uh, without necessarily sort of handing them the wheel. Um, and it, it really did feel like the entire process of the book from beginning to end, there was no point in which I felt like I wasn't um, also including the, the chorus of voices, the chorus of demons um, that would come into the writing process. And, and that just became essentially the practice. Writing the book was the practice of um, inviting in every, um, every hesitation, every ounce of self-doubt, every fear of, you know, who else might be implicated in this book and the reasons why they might be angry at me. And I mean, really just everything came to the surface. Um, and it, it felt like a, a very sort of boots on the ground practice of um, inviting my demons and allowing them to have space and allowing them to have a voice and writing the book anyways. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we can get even more granular. So something comes up for you like, who am I to be writing a book on the four noble truths and the eightfold path? I'm all, you know, whatever that voice of judgment is, you know, do I really blah, 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 whatever it is. In that moment, you're saying, 
thinking, okay, I'm writing a book on this very topic of how to work with this. What do you do? What do you actually do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, Tammy, I wrote so much, so much that didn't actually make its way into the book um, where I allowed each of these hesitations some time to come through in the writing process. Like, okay, I, I thought that I was going to sit down and, and write about this chapter today. Um, but what I'm actually going to sit down and write about is um, why I feel like I am a terrible writer and why this book was a, a really bad idea and how um, I'm never going to get it finished and how everyone is going to think that I'm a total fraud and how I already feel like a complete failure. Um, and, and then that would be my writing process. That would be what I was writing about until that argument felt exhausted until I was able to um, just kind of like let that voice and let that demon run around enough in my writing process that it would exhaust itself. And once mm-hmm. it exhausted itself, I, I would keep writing. And what came out next was the book. Um, but it, it, it really, it really did work its way um, entirely into my writing process. And then once it was able to kind of settle into feeling like it had had a say and it had had a voice and it was expressed and it was heard, then I wrote the book. Adriana, what do you think was the wisdom uh, that has come and that came to you from welcoming the demons of self-doubt about the writing process itself? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... I think that um, the wisdom of the self-doubt was essentially just um, the wisdom of of, of staying safe. Um, I think, you know, there was a, a certain recognition that the moment that I wrote a book and the moment that I became a little bit more visible in writing a book and, uh, you know, sort of had the audacity to publicly say, hey, I have this book coming out. It's called Tea and Cake with Demons. Um, that there, uh, you know, there would be uh, criticism. There would be people who, uh, you know, just didn't like me or like didn't pay attention to me, which, uh, you know, is maybe one and the same. Um, and so I, I think that the, the wisdom of the self-doubt in the writing process itself um, was really just a safety mechanism. Like you're, you know, you're, you're good in this little space here. Um, don't, don't take up too much space. Don't get any bigger than this. Don't get any more vocal than this. I think there's also, you know, an, an element of, um, yeah, there's an element of, of, um, just sort of the, the work that went into it. Um, and really kind of doubting my own, um, doubting my own capacity of, of whether or not I would actually be able to, to write a book from start to finish. Um, and yeah, I think, I think all of the demons that came through in that writing process specifically, um, were just, you know, really just, just trying to keep me safe. The subtitle of the book is a Buddhist guide to feeling worthy. And one of the things I'm curious about is if you can more directly connect this idea of our feelings of worthiness. I mean, in your case, it had to do with writing a book, but for people in general, our feelings of worthiness and how that relates to our willingness to welcome in difficult experiences, difficult emotions, things we find challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And this directly goes back to my process in writing the book and that I, I think the moment that you make a, a really audacious statement, like you are worthy, you are worthy just the way that you are without any extra bells and whistles and accoutrements, just, just by virtue of, of being human, you have inherent dignity and inherent worth. Every 
shred of evidence to the contrary, by necessity comes to the forefront. Um, just, just in writing that statement, you are worthy in the, just the way that you are. Um, I think it, it invites self-doubt to the forefront um, because it's like, yeah, you know, I really, I like that idea a lot conceptually, um, but what about this? Like, what, what about this aspect of myself? Um, what about the fact that, like, you know, I am a terrible person because of X, Y, Z? Or, you know, what about um, the fact that I um, can't follow through on the things that I say that I'm going to? Or, um, you know, what about all of these ways in which I feel like a complete fraud and a complete failure? Like, I love the idea conceptually that I'm worthy just the way that I am. And yet, you know, I think uh, we, we also can't divorce this statement from the fact that we live in a culture where we're receiving messages all day long that we're like close, we're like pretty close to being okay or like being good in the world. Um, if only we get X, Y, and Z, right? There's, there's always a sense of like, you're almost there, but what you could use is this. Um, and so I think that the moment that uh, again, going back to your question, the moment that we sort of make this this audacious claim um, that just by virtue of being human, you are absolutely worthy of taking up space and being here and um, occupying your space in this world with inherent dignity. Um, all of the demons come to the forefront. Every single thing that obscures our trust and our belief and our confidence and our own worth, right there immediately. You know, you have a quote in the book, perhaps our worth, our value is an inborn state that we all possess, not contingent on external factors. And I think most people reading that and listening to the comment you just made would say it's true. Our value is an inborn state, every human being. Like we all know this. And at the same time, when something happens, like you know, we get bad news about one of our projects or investments or something that we did turns out to be a mistake of some kind, something, something like that. We can't connect to our intrinsic worth. You know, it's, it's, it seems like it's fragile when we're sitting there reading a book, we read a sentence like that, we get it, but then it, it's not a stable kind of knowing. Tell us more about your experience. I know you coach a lot of different people, the journey from knowing that intellectually to really knowing it in a more unshakable way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So a, a big part of what inspired this book um, is the fact that, you know, as you mentioned, I've been coaching for uh, 10 years at this point. Um, and I, I coach with one of the, uh, largest, uh, nutrition training schools in the world. Um, and as a part of coaching with this school, I'm in contact with women predominantly, uh, though there are some men in the program who come from all different backgrounds. They're spread across the world, different ages, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different beliefs, different, uh, value systems, different interests, different, I mean, really, it couldn't be a wider cross-section. Um, and something that I, I noticed in doing these group coaching programs over a number of years is that regardless of where they were coming from and what their background was like, almost everybody at some point during the program uh, voiced the concern that they weren't quite blank enough. They were like not quite not quite smart enough or not quite savvy enough or they didn't quite know enough or, you know, they didn't really have a, a wide enough um, reach in terms of their social circle or, or there was there was always just this kind of like not enoughness um, that felt very um, internalized. Uh, like it, they, it meant something about them and it meant something about who they are uh, in the world. And there were enough of these conversations over and over again over a number of years that I, I really started to turn my attention here of like, wait, this is this is rampant. This isn't just like a every now and then case or or it isn't sort of 
confined to a, a particular type of person, right? It has such a broad reach. What is this? What is what is this sense of not enoughness? Um, and I think just in terms of my own meditation practice and and my own path and doing my own work, um, it's something that I had really turned towards as a, a living inquiry in my own life and in my own practice um, of just those moments when I felt completely debased, uh, going back to your point, by my circumstances, uh, where depending on whether my circumstances were operating in my favor or, you know, I got turned down by something or someone that I, I really, really um, wanted to be in relationship to, um, whether or not I was having a good or a bad day or I felt good or bad about myself was really dependent on that. Um, and so I started to notice the connection just in, in terms of um, the fact that I, I felt like I was continually on this escalator of like, oh, I feel really confident and I feel really good about myself. And I'm like, the way that I'm participating in the world feels really, really solid. Um, and then the moment that I would, um, you know, quote unquote, fail at something or I would receive some really uh, harsh criticism or some feedback, um, it would completely debase my sense of self. And so I, I think um, those two experiences combined of of just noticing that within myself and then noticing that within others, the fact that I wasn't alone in this, the fact that it was sort of this big conversation that we're not really having a lot of um, made me want to study it. It made me want to have conversations about it. It made me want to think about it more. Um, and I think that was a big inspiration for writing the book um, because, uh, you know, I wonder, I wonder, Tammy, if you can relate to the book writing process. It's, it's really about spending um, a number of months, a number of years sort of like diving into one question. Um, and I think in terms of this book, it was a question of like, worth what is that what what is that thing what is that thing that um has the power to completely debase us and and why is it that we are all feeling or many of us are feeling um like not quite enough what is that um so yeah i think that was really the the impetus for the book you know in in my own experience developing a meditation practice and a way of discovering a sense of value, value in being has been the only thing that's really helped me develop that sense of knowing my own worth, my own value from the inside, regardless of external circumstances. You describe it in the book as training ourselves to hold our seat. And I wonder if you can connect what you learned from your meditation practice, from being on the cushion and this question of unconditional worth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Similarly, I, I feel like the moment that I really committed to my meditation practice um, is the moment that I, I began to develop a real sense of unshakable okayness um, where there is a, a certain sense, I think, in meditation practice where um, we are making ourselves a, a bit more sensitive, we're sensitizing ourselves both to our own internal world and to the world around us, um, and we are inviting in whatever it is that arises, whether it be emotions or impulses or thoughts or um you know, sounds of the environment, the room that we're in. Um, and we're staying incredibly watchful of whatever is sincerely there um, without necessarily um, kind of like jumping in to participate. There is a, a certain amount of um, just, just staying watchful and observant um, while also staying accommodating. And I think it was, it's in this practice that there's a certain amount of steadiness, I know for me at least, um, that really took root, a sense of feeling like whatever was there on a day-to-day -day basis, and of course it always changes, um, that I could be with it, that I could be with whatever arose and invited in um, and stay alert and present and watchful uh, without 
necessarily allowing it to hijack me completely. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think there's a, a certain amount of, um, a certain amount of that, that translates off the cushion, right. Uh, where I would find myself in circumstances out in the world off the cushion, um, where I, I could stay open and accommodating to what was there. Um, without necessarily allowing it to uh, just completely take the wheel. Do you have a kind of go-to practice that you imagine you would do? Like, let's just say, for example, I'm not trying to torture you here publicly, but the book gets a terrible (laughs) review from someone that you Mm -hmm. wished really gave it a positive review, something that, you know, whatever, something something like that. Terrible review. You read the review. What would be your go-to move in that moment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I've had a number of things like this happen where, you know, like doing something very public and there's someone who's just like posting poop emojis all over it. Like things like this absolutely do happen all the time. Um, and I think something that I've always found to be so incredibly helpful, um, is just coming back to my body and really feeling whatever I'm sincerely feeling in that moment without needing to like stick my fingers in it and rearrange it and try to make it a different feeling or a better feeling, or even like sort of like immediately trying to reframe it without feeling it first. Um, which, you know, I talk about strategies is one of my favorite strategies. It's like, if I can figure it out, then I don't have to feel it. I can sort of analyze it to a pulp and then it makes it really workable and I can just let it go. Um, so I think rather than kind of jumping or launching into any sort of, strategy to make it feel different than what it is something that I find to be so helpful is just landing back in the body and taking a little bit of time to feel what I'm feeling uh, as just the raw material Uh, noticing sort of the the narrative that's wrapped around it and maybe like the the impulse to kind of like crank up that narrative and, and and like make the emotion stronger or figure it out And instead, just loosening the narrative, coming back to the raw material in the body. Like, oh, what what does this feel like in my body right now? Um, Something that I work with pretty frequently is anxiety. Uh, Definitely not exempt from that. And it is so helpful just to, um, you know, really like land in my chest. Say, okay, now this is the space in my chest where I feel it. And at this moment, it feels like flapping wings. It's fast. There's something very fast. It's moving. It has a lot of velocity. And then I might find myself kind of like going back up into my head and thinking like, why am I feeling anxious? And just dropping that back into the body. Okay. It feels very weightless. There's something very weightless that is feeling in my chest. And there's also a a tightness and a heat that's in my belly simultaneously be a little bit of tingling in my arms and my fingertips. And then I find myself drifting back up into my head and I'm thinking, you know, like, okay, well, this is what I can do about it. And like, oh, 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 okay. Back into the body. Okay. Just feeling that flapping levity moving around in my chest, the tightness in my belly, the tingling in my arms and my feet and then maybe, you know, drifting back up into the head. And I, I think it really is that continual process of, of moving back into the body and just staying curious of what, what does this feel like right now? What, does it have a particular space in the body that it occupies? You know, does, does that space feel expansive? Does it feel contracted? Is there a sense of heat or coolness? Is there a sense of weight or weightlessness related to it? So I think in these moments as, as sort of an on-the-spot practice, it's so helpful just, just to notice that tendency, um, that impulse to want to um, kind of figure it out and like get really lost in the, the, the narrative around it, um, that that can feel very gratifying. Um, but rather than perpetuating the feeling, just allowing ourselves to actually experience the feeling and getting curious about 
the, the physical qualities that are manifesting. Uh, and I've always found that just spending two minutes, three minutes, really feeling into my body as a way of sort of like highlighting how uh, ephemeral that feeling actually is when it isn't being kind of like uh, wound up by the story around it. One of the pointers you give in Tea and Cake with Demons is that when we feel, and this is my language, a demon eruption of some kind, we can actually turn to practice right in that moment. And that in and of itself is a huge, huge movement to say, oh, this is, this is my moment to practice. I thought that was very helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, easier said than done. I mean, I, I think that um, one needs to one needs to to know a thing to be able to sort of call that thing into being on demand. Um, and this is where I find having a, a regular meditation practice to be so exceedingly helpful. Um, because if I didn't have that time on the cushion on a daily basis. Um, I think it would be nearly impossible to to sort of like on on command or on demand be like, oh, I'm so angry right now. Okay, all right, okay, okay. I'm gonna practice. Like, it isn't. It hasn't been baked into the bones yet. Um, practice. Mm-hmm. So, so I think it's a, a little more difficult to to call on something that that we haven't been um, sort of calling on all along. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It does make sense, and I think you're making a really important point. Okay, let's talk about the part of us that judges ourselves and how you work with that. Because it's one thing to say, you know, I'm going to now practice because I'm feeling it's another thing to find oneself, which I think a lot of us do, really judging ourselves. Like, here it is again. I was so quickly and easily thrown off my seat by just this stupid email I got. Jesus, it was nothing. But look at me. Look, I'm in the ditch. No, I don't want to practice. It's the last thing because I don't like practicing. I'm a bad practitioner. On and on. The list could go on and on. So what are some of your good tips for working with that voice of judgment? Mm-hmm. You know, honestly, I think just running it through some like old-fashioned Socratic questioning of of in that moment, um, when we catch ourselves uh, sort of judging ourselves or, or rating our quote-unquote uh, performance or participation in life, um, like really just taking a moment and turning and looking at it and saying, "Wait, is that is that true? Is that is that true? Am I actually like a terrible practitioner? Is it true? Maybe, maybe it could be. It could be." And if it is true, how do I know that it's true? What, what are the experiences that I've had in my life that have proven to me that I am actually a t- terrible at this? Okay, great. So I've had these experiences. Is it possible that it could be another way? Well, maybe. Maybe it could be another way. Maybe not. And I think really just sort of taking ourselves through, through a line of old-fashioned Socratic questioning um, to, to sort of like poke holes in its validity um, at the very least sort of allows us to, to move from a really subjective place of judging to a slightly more objective place of um, noticing that we're judging ourselves and that that doesn't necessarily have to be the thing that's happening right now. Um, so, so I think anything that we can do to, to kind of um, catch ourselves in the act and really turn and look at it directly. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, that's what I mean by the analogy of tea and cake with demons is that um, rather than, you know, sort of reaching for the things that I know for myself are so readily available and so convenient and so easy to just kind of like, you know, grab onto and, and start scrolling, for instance, or, uh, you know, start streaming or, or whatever it is that we like to, to kind of like um, to move sure. towards in terms of distracting ourselves um, to say like, okay, wait, instead of that, 
I'm just going to take a moment to turn and look at this. What's here? What's actually here? Now, it's interesting that you mentioned starting scrolling as one possible response to feeling slightly off, because one of the other things you write about in Tea and Cake with Demons is holding our worthiness when we're engaged in social media. And you describe that this is actually an advanced practice, that it's really hard because comparison can breed self-aggression. And I think we all can see this. So here we're already not feeling so great about something that's happened. We go to our social media feed and we're not in a place where we can perform this advanced practice. So what would it be like as an advanced practice to not compare ourselves? Really not compare. I mean, would there, maybe it would just be you wouldn't even have any desire to go on social media anyway. I don't know. I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Um, I don't even remember describing it as an advanced, advanced practice, but as you're talking about, it, I'm like, Oh yeah, that is actually really advanced. Um, yeah. I think that entering into a, a, a space where we have endless opportunities to compare ourselves and to judge ourselves and to criticize ourselves and to kind of um, like place ourselves on the hierarchy of worth of like, wait, am I how, like, how do I measure up here? Um, whether it be social media or it be anywhere else, um, it's really advanced because in some sense, we're not even giving ourselves a, a fighting chance. Like we're walking into an environment that was built for that specific purpose or that, um, you know, has a, has a really fancy algorithm that, that kind of perpetuates that process. Um, so yeah, again, I think going back to, um, having to, to sort of know something first in a really contained space. And I think this is why I'm such a big proponent of butt on the cushion meditation practice. Like nothing, nothing replaces that. Nothing replaces actually putting your butt on the meditation cushion and doing the practice because it's a really neutral, safe space where we're not sort of inviting the rest of the world in um, to push our buttons, um, where we can see, we can see our own stuff. We can see our own stuff. We can see the way that our mind works. We can see our habits. We can see our tendencies. We can see the kind of ditches that we fall in to use your words. Um, so that we're so much more aware of them when we actually do go out into the world or go out into these spaces that are just like ripe with button pushing, um, and, and, and have a fighting chance, have a sense of like, oh, wait, no, okay, I know what's happening here because I've seen it a hundred times before on the meditation question. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Now, Adriana, the second part of Tea and Cake with Demons is a deep dive into the Four Noble Truths. And I thought this was really interesting. In the book, you describe the Four Noble Truths as the path of getting our act together and learning to love ourselves more along the way. And I thought to myself, that's definitely a next generation description of the four noble truths. I've never, <laughs> I've never heard it that way, described that way before. So tell me how you see the four noble truths as the path of getting our act together and learning to love ourselves more along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the path of getting our act together, you know, I think, um, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the, the Four Noble Truths uh, coming from the, the Hinayana practice um, of really learning how to work with our own minds and our own self and our own tendencies um, first. It, it really is kind of the primary practice. Like, okay, before we decide that we're going to go out and we're going to change the world, we're going to save the world, um, it can be really helpful to first learn ourselves, to, to study ourselves. Uh, and again, that's where kind of the butt on the cushion meditation practice comes in. Um, so the path of, of getting our act together, you know, I think the Vulnerable Truths is such a, a brilliant framework. Um, and I know that I mentioned this in the book, 
which is that um, it isn't something that the the Buddha, the historical Buddha necessarily made up. It isn't something that he created. Um, it's something that um, he was able to receive enough deep insight into, into the, the nature of being a human being, the nature of reality, as it were, um, and develop a, a system around it or, or codify it in a way um, that gives us an opportunity to work with it. Summarize the Four Noble Truths in Adriana language for our listeners who are unfamiliar. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. So the First Noble Truth, um, classically defined as the, the truth of suffering, the truth of dukkha, um, which in Adriana language, I guess, uh, would be, um, it's really hard to be a human being. It's really hard to be a human being, and none of us are exempt from that. And there are a number of different sort of flavors um, of difficulty or dissatisfaction in being a human being. Um, the very first is, is sort of um, pain, what we would consider to be like really obvious pain. Ouch, I stubbed my toe, that hurt. Or like, ooh, I broke my arm, that hurt. Um, so there's there's sort of the, the suffering of suffering or dissatisfaction of dissatisfaction. Um, and then there's the more subtle form of it, which is the fact that even the good stuff has dissatisfaction built into it. Because even the yummiest of things, like even the ice cream, um, at some point is going to run out or we're going to eat so much of it that we get sick. Uh, that even the good stuff, I think about this in terms of, of marriage. I just got married last summer. Like mm -hmm. very best case scenario with my husband is that we have a lifelong partnership and a really happy marriage where we love each other and we support each other and we challenge each other and we grow together. And then one of us dies. Like even the good stuff has dissatisfaction built right into it because of impermanence. It's not going to last forever. And then the third form of, dis of dissatisfaction in the first noble truth um, being all pervasive dissatisfaction, which um, I think for myself and, and many of us might recognize as kind of that feeling of like, mm, like I just want something. Like this is fine, right? Like nothing is really happening here that I need to be struggling against. But like, I just like, I just want something. I just like, I want a snack or like I'm a little bit bored or like maybe I want to like check my phone or like there's this kind of built in all pervasive dissatisfaction of like, this is okay, but it could be a little bit better. Um, so in the second noble truth, uh, this brilliant system goes on to say, uh, that if we're experiencing dissatisfaction and, and all of these different forms of dissatisfaction that make it really hard to be a human being, um, there's a there's a really good reason for it. It isn't just dropping from the sky. There's a really good reason why we feel dissatisfied um, and laid out in vulnerable terms is um, the root poisons, which is uh, oftentimes translated as being um, desire or fixation or attachment, this, this sense of like wanting to hold on to uh, what it is that we really like um, or wanting to kind of like follow the good stuff down the rabbit hole, um, aggression or aversion, um, which is what tends to happen when our desires aren't met, is that um, we, we, we kind of struggle against that. And then ignorance, which is that this is happening all day long. We're always kind of caught in the crosshairs between um, the experience that we want to be having and the experience that we simultaneously want to be avoiding without even recognizing that this, this crosshairs is, is playing out in our daily life all the time. It's always happening. So, I oftentimes think about in terms of like making this feel really relevant and making this feel really accessible. I oftentimes think of modern advertising in particular where, uh, you know, the languaging around marketing is oftentimes uh, catering to, to sort of this intersection where, um, you know, have this thing, lose, lose 20 pounds, lose 20 pounds without having to give up the things that you love. Uh, have this experience that you want to be having without having to have this experience that you don't want to be having. 
Um, so this, this sort of crosshairs is happening all the time. And it's the continual sort of rearranging of our experience to, to, to like try to have the exact sort of flavor of experience that we want to be having um, while being increasingly intolerant of the experience that we don't want to be having um, that essentially per perpetuates the difficulty of being a human being. Um, so the third noble truth, um, which I think is kind of like the good news is essentially that uh, there's a way off. There's a, there's kind of a way off this cycle or there's a way out of this, this binary of classifying everything as either good, bad, delicious, disgusting. Yes. No, this is for me. This is against me. Um, that there's a way to, to find a, a, a bit of cessation from this continual, um, from this continual aversion or attachment. And the fourth noble truth is the eightfold path, um, which is essentially, this is how we do it. This is, this is how we take this view or this, this framework um, out into the world and start working with ourselves, our own mind and our own actions uh, in a way that uh, not only identifies the ways in which we perpetuate our own difficulty, um, but, but really gives us kind of a plan of action, which I think is really brilliant. The path of getting our act together and learning to love ourselves more along the way. Tell me about the learning to love ourselves part of that, as you just described the Four Noble Truths. How does that come in? Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, in part, I've always seen the Eightfold Path as being uh, a path of self-respect, uh, so much of, of the path is really just taking responsibility for ourselves um, and, and choosing to essentially be the grown-up, be the adult uh, that we need ourselves to be um, by, by taking ownership and taking agency of our lives and of our actions. Um, and I, I think there's something about that type of care of saying, you know, I, I value myself enough, I value my life enough um, to, to really uh, choose to consider how I'm participating in it, um, that cultivates a, a sense of love towards ourselves, mm -hmm. or at the very least, a sense of trust, a sense of confidence, a, a, a sense of like, I can rely on myself to be there. Adriana, you're helping me fall in love with Buddhism all over again, all fresh and new. Amazing. Oh, pshaw, pshaw. <laughs> True. True. Now, I am curious about you one more time here that it's kind of like, does this stuff really work? Really? You had a history of panic attacks and you mentioned that, you know, anxiety is something you can feel. You can get anxious in certain situations. What's it like now? Like now it doesn't turn into a panic attack because you've learned this way of meeting your own experience, becoming embodied and working with it. Or, or tell me how that goes for you now compared to in your history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I think historically when I look back um, and it's so painful to think about it is that I, I didn't, know that there were other um didn't know that there were other options i just thought like okay i'm anxious i'm panicked oh my gosh i'm gonna have a panic attack okay this is it um and i didn't really have any tools for working with that um something that i think is is really important to highlight is that um it's not as though this this path of practice, it's not as though meditation has somehow um, sort of vaunted me into a position of, of not being anxious or not feeling panicked um, or not kind of, uh, you know, wanting to have some sort of control over the world. Um, but it gives me a really reflective lens to see what I'm doing and to notice it as it's happening uh, and to catch it in the act and say, oh, 
okay, great. I see this. Okay. I see this. Um, and I think something about this practice, and again, it's, it's sort of the insight through repetition of, of doing a thing enough times that it becomes a little bit more of our Freudian slip. It becomes a little bit more of our kind of natural inclination or natural habit, um, is that it, it, it creates a sense of, of choice of, of having a new experience, having the experience of being able to choose whether or not I'm going to follow that anxiety right down the rabbit hole or whether I'm going to take a moment to just stop and feel it in my body and spend some time with it and welcome it in and say, okay, hi, I see you. This is what's happening right now. So let's let this be the experience. How does this actually feel? Um, and, and I think that, um, again, it, it hasn't made me um, someone who doesn't have the experience of anxiety or someone who doesn't have the experience of panic. It's just given me a lot more space to respond to what's happening um, and many more tools to choose how I want to work with it rather than it just going from zero to 60 without any space or, um, you know, tools to respond. Probably my favorite quote from the book is get close to the earth in case of turbulence. I loved that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That's always, it's always held true for me is just, you know, the instinct to like drop to my knees like, like get really lower my sense of gravity as far as I possibly can. Um, yeah. I wonder here to end our conversation, Adriana, if you could just have us all together with you in this act of self-respect. I really like talking about the Eightfold Path as a path of self-respect. If we could just sit together really being in our bodies and in our experience, and if you could guide us through maybe a five-minute experience of just being with whatever this conversation might have stirred up for people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So if you are listening to this conversation, maybe just taking a moment to find a seat that feels really sturdy, sustainable, could be on a chair, couch, floor, finding a place where your body feels supported. Somewhat sturdy, effortless. And then you're just letting the eyes gently shut. Or if it's within your practice to keep eyes open, it's letting the gaze be soft, hazy, unfocused. And we'll take just a few moments to really land, arrive fully. It's by opening up our senses. Finding our vantage point here in space. So beginning by shifting our attention over to sound. Taking a few moments just to receive the sound of the space that you're in. Tonal quality. Any noises that are present. And staying open to sound, shifting the attention to touch. Taking a few moments just to feel the body here in space. The shape of the body that light pressure of making contact. Texture of clothing, temperature of air. Very little effort needed here. It's opening up to what already is. Our direct experience, body and space. Bringing the attention to the belly, the chest, 
Maybe even placing one hand on the belly, one hand on the heart, if that feels honest. Taking just a few moments to feel into the space of the body, belly, chest, oftentimes the storehouse of a lot of emotion. Just getting a sense of what this space is like today. Perhaps just allowing our eyes to gently shut if they haven't already. And giving ourselves a bit more of a formal temperature check. It's leading in with the inquiry. What does it feel like to be me? What does it feel like to be me? Right here, right now, no filter. And then the spirit of non-judgment, seeing if we can just notice what honestly arises in response to that question without making it mean anything about us one way or another. It's getting an honest read. What does it feel like to be me? Whatever is sincerely there in response, perhaps taking a moment just to notice if and where that presents in the body. The physical presentation of this mood or emotion. Just a bit of time to work with it directly, spend some time with it, perhaps noticing if this mood or emotion has a particular sense of space. Maybe there's an area of the body where it's felt most directly. Again, what does it feel like to be me? Perhaps noticing if this mood or emotion has a particular density Maybe it feels thick, solid in the body. Maybe it's a bit more flimsy, ephemeral. Sense of weight or weightlessness in the body. Taking a moment just to turn and look at the mind, getting a sense of what the thoughts are doing here. Perhaps this interplay between thinking and feeling. Noticing if you can loosen the narrative just a little bit and come back to the direct experience of the feeling in the body. What does it 
feel like to be me. Whatever happens to be there for us. It's taking a moment to thank it for coming. for being expressed. And then bringing our attention back to the breath in the body. Giving ourselves a few deep inhales, deep exhales. And allowing our formal formal practice to drop. Great. Great. Thank you for that. Thank you, Adriana. Uh, you're such a loving and creative meditation teacher. And really, I think, you know, you're as a next-gen teacher, I just feel so proud that sounds true is publishing your work tea and cake with demons a buddhist guide to feeling worthy by adriana limbach and congratulations on working through all your demons that came up in the writing process and completing the book it's really beautiful and helpful thank you thank you thank you for everything tammy thank you it's really great to meet you Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world 